Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome. I'm actually in Barcelona, very bizarrely. I'll explain this at the end because the Telegraph doing a hit piece about it. You think they've got better things to do with their time. But nonetheless, we have an action-packed show today covering a a very, very substantial number of issues and very, very important issues they are too. We are going to talk in the show, almost all the show, about Emma Watson. Now, you may have seen what's happened. Emma Watson has been falsely defamed as an anti-Semite for one of the most innocuous displays of solidarity with the Palestinian people that you can even contemplate or imagine. But the reason we're talking about it isn't to centre Emma Watson. I'm sure she wouldn't want to be censored and vaguely wouldn't want to be censored in the media discussion, which has all the, the absolute firestorm that has enveloped her as a consequence of this innocuous Instagram post. But more broadly, what it says at the moment in terms of the assault against Palestinian solidarity, uh, the attempt to delegitimize the most basic acts of solidarity with the Palestinian people, but also what this says about anti-Palestinian racism, uh, an issue which is completely absent from this discussion, the total dehumanization of the Palestinian people to the extent that showing any sort of solidarity or even acknowledging the existence of the Palestinian people is deemed to be uh, is deemed as an act of intolerable hatred. So we're going to talk about that with two very brilliant guests, a uh, leading um, Palestinian civil society leader from Ramallah and a brilliant, uh, prominent uh, Jewish peace activist who I believe is here in London, who also has a beautiful cat, which we're always very keen to host on this particular show. Before I bring in our first guest, though, just housekeeping as ever, if you're watching live, click through to YouTube, press like and subscribe. Uh, You can support the show. Uh, We're going to be doing two shows a week. Uh, So do support us on patreon.com forward slash ownjoes84. That's how we make the documentaries. We're not funded by billionaires. We're only made possible uh, because of your support. Uh, And you can also support us using uh, Super Chat on YouTube. You can put questions to the guests. I will read out and thank everybody by name at the end of the show, which I will remember to do on pain of death. Otherwise, uh, I will get a very angry load of WhatsApps uh, later from the team. Uh, also, uh, do listen to us on our podcast because this is obviously, well, maybe you are listening to this on the podcast, in which case just ignore me and carry on listening on the podcast. But if you are, you can download us, leave a review as ever and help support us that way. But we're going to go straight on now to our first fantastic guest, who is has been vindicated, one of the Colston Four. This is uh, four activists who were being prosecuted for their lawful, we can say, heroic acts uh, to take down a uh, prominent slaver who is responsible for the deaths of hundreds of slaves, a barbaric period of human history, which has largely been scrubbed away. We don't talk about the real 
horrors of the slave trade, but because of the acts, the actions of people like Rian, who I'm Rian, sorry, pronounce your name right, who is on a campsite joining us through her phone. Uh, <laughs> thanks to your acts, we can have these discussions. That's the point. Before I bring you in, but firstly, congratulations. Just to explain, Rian was one of four uh, who was dragged through the courts, and a jury sat there, looked at the evidence, assessed it objectively, and they decided that you didn't break the law. They did. <laughs> can we just, before we... Uh, before I ask you about this and talk about this, let's just show a clip of the moment that Edward Colston's statue was thrown into the river, uh, which of course triggered this court case. A wholesome moment there, I would say. Yeah, just explain. How did you get involved? What happened? Well, so I think it's the whole stage is set, obviously, by the fact that we've, you know, we've just spent the last couple of years dealing with a global pandemic. Um, and COVID really gave a chance to, for me to sit and think about things. You know, I've not actually... I wasn't really an activist before. I wouldn't call myself an activist, although it is is funny that sort of I'm here in the context also um, uh, like alongside people talking about Palestine because that was actually one of the main sort of um, uh, movements that uh, really inspired me before I ever became involved in activ activism, really, before... Um, when my friend Lizzie visited Palestine, uh, who was a photographer and, you know, brought back the, the stories of um, the struggle of Palestinian people. So I, I will say that I will always stand in solidarity with Palestinians. Um, but moving, yeah, to the before the 7th of June, the pandemic had hit and we had, uh, you know, obviously on the 25th of May, um, the news of George Floyd's murder swept the world. And that really triggered something in, in everybody, I think. And at that point, I was reading a book called um, Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race, which you might know is uh, written by Rennie Edo Lodge. Um, and it was through doing, reading that um, and this sort of galvanising of emotion and empathy for the the struggle of people of colour um, that really took place in those few weeks. And... Um, <laughs> Apologies. I, at this point in the day, I've done a lot of interviews. Yesterday was a very emotional day, and I'm, yeah, I'm flagging just a little bit. <laughs> um, the, the, the statue of Edward Colston that stood there, I mean, it was actually put there, actually, long after he died. I mean, it wasn't even a kind of... So t t talk about that. So, I mean, yeah, it was um, erected 175 years after he died by um, a man called J.W. Arrowsmith, who... Uh, tried to raise funds for a, a year or so, I think, um, in order to build the statue, never got very much public support, which kind of negates this idea that's on the plaque, you know, erected by the citizens of Bristol. It's, uh, it was never very widely supported. And the dissent around that statue has existed for around the last hundred years, um, going back to the 1920s. So it only really stood for 25 years without being contested at all. Um and obviously in the last 30 years, people really have been crying out, not only to remove the statue, really, but to eradicate the 
the the myths of this man in the city who is venerated as this philanthropist who gave money to schools and hospitals with absolutely no mention of the 84,000 people that he helped traffic and the the business of the slave trade that he helped perfect so tell me about what that moment when you took it took down the statue how did it all how did it happen what, what were the kind of moments leading up to it so it, it's funny because I think the the least believable thing within the trial, and actually what you know, one of the most true things is that I did not know that Milo was going to have a rope, and Milo didn't know that I was going to have a rope. And I think you can see the jury looking at us like, really? <laughs> it's like, no, it's true. And <laughs> um, the the night before, I think I'd already start, decided that you know the statue should come down if possible. And, you know, my role in that as, um, so I work in the events industry and um, I do a bit of rigging, so I have access to rope. And so I believe that I should take a rope that I owned to the protest and offer it to the people of Bristol, should they wish to try and pull it down. Um, and I, there was conversations but in the night before, um, because I already knew Sage and Milo beforehand. Um, but this was more like, you know, us validating the fact that it would be a good idea to do but no one ever came up with any plan no one ever said you bring this I'll bring that um so it really is like there's a lot of magic to this moment in that it kind of seems almost like a collective consciousness sort of moment where everyone had simultaneously decided that that is what was happening that day and I've heard that around half an hour behind us was other people with ropes (laughs) just just talk us through what what when it was clear to you the jury weren't going to convict you just to tell us do you, or, or was there a moment do you think in as the court was you know i mean obviously you weren't speaking to the jury but as the evidence was being presented did you have a hunch you were gonna that that this was going to be the result and tell us what does it signify because obviously a lot of the right now are saying well this just legitimizes criminal damage it's a free-for-all um what do you say you know what does this mean for Peaceful civil disobedience was a long tradition in Britain. Lots of rights and freedoms were won through peaceful civil disobedience, but it's often demonised. What does it say that a jury of randomly selected British men and women sat there, looked at the evidence and decided not to convict you? I mean, well, obviously, throughout the whole process, I've personally felt very positive and never felt like a criminal. Um, But so I've always been very positive that Hopefully a jury could see that too, but it's all been down to the fact that the judges allowed us the defences that we relied upon. Um, And I think the whole way through, you have to keep, you know, you have to keep grounded and realise that it could go either way because it is is a divisive thing. It's just incredible that a jury has sat there through all the um, evidence, including David Olashoga's evidence, which was essentially around a two hour uh, lecture on the history of slavery and empire and Colston. Um, but it's interesting, this, um, yeah, like you say, this rhetoric around direct action and how I saw Robert Jenrick, actually, the, the ex-housing minister this morning, saying on Twitter that uh, there's no place for criminal damage, you know, that is, can't ever get us where we need to go and it's just you know it's just criminal but obviously if you look at the history of protest and of progress you know with people without people such as obviously the suffragettes who damaged things in order to make uproar in the name of women's right to vote i i wouldn't have the vote 
<laughs> so it just proves that direct action and sometimes making a big fuss about something does make us move forwards. Just finally, in terms of our just the, uh, Britain's own failure to come to terms collectively with its with our the, the history of horrors. I mean, the, the, we've actually alluded to history we should be proud of: the history of people who mm. struggle, like suffragettes trade unionists, people who fought for workers' rights, LGBTQ rights, often using the sorts of peaceful civil disobedience and, and more. I mean, the suffragettes did not just do peaceful civil disobedience, I should note. Uh, yeah. but, but the sorts of tactics you used. Uh, but we had empire in which, for example, in India, if people read a brilliant book called Late Victorian Holocaust, tens of millions of Indians died of unnecessary avoidable famines under British rule. Uh, the standard of living in India was the same as Britain, as England uh, before colonialism. Um, whether it be Kenya, where in the 1950s, the mass incarceration of the Kikuyu tribe, the violent crackdown of the Mau Mau uprising. Uh, we're going to talk about Palestine. There's a legacy there. I mean, you know, across Africa, across Asia, these huge horrors, as well as the slave trade. Do you think this, what you've done, it helps us have a discussion about the real history that is actually erased by this country. Absolutely. I think it picks away at this narrative of, you know, um, empirical pride, you know. And I, I understand why the older generation have a problem perhaps with coming to terms with some of this because they grew up waving flags and um, being proud of the um, the history of the British Empire. And that I heard someone say recently, actually, you know, that a lot of that generation never saw what the empire was. They just were, you know, they, they were there to wave flags and celebrate and, you know, reap the benefits of it. So a lot of people didn't sort of actually see what the empire was. So it's hard to kind of come to terms with that. But, yeah, I think that the the statue coming down has really started to illuminate um, some of the legacy, you know, the, the, the negative legacy that we've been left with, you know, without the transatlantic slave trade, racism wouldn't be you know nearly uh, in terms of like african people wouldn't be nearly as much of a problem like that that divide was created almost intentionally and i think it's used continuously to divide us you know even today pretty patel is um sharing you know thoughts about uh, refugees and like you've got this nationality and borders bill and it's always the scapegoat isn't it there's always somebody used as the scapegoat and i think we just need to sort of fight back against that and um raise each other up and aim for some unity rian huge congratulations on the verdict to you and to the three others and as i've said what you've done a it shows that peaceful civil disobedience does work uh and has worked throughout our history but secondly the role you've all played in terms of forcing us to have a discussion about the horrors which are erased, the consequences of which we still live with today, which will be partly the discussion we're about to have. That's absolutely a huge critical contribution. So well done and take care. Thank you so much. Cheers. Take care, Thank you. So we're going to go straight in. I'm, I can see, by the way, the Wi-Fi is a bit dodgy occasionally here, which we will try and resolve because we've not obviously done this from Barcelona before, but we will get there. We will get there. Let's bring in our next two guests because we're going to talk about Emma Watson and what this represents. I'm going to bring in um, M Hilton, who is a fantastic activist, uh, who is with one of the co-founders of NAMOD, uh, which helps coordinate uh, Jewish peace activists here in Britain. Hey, Em, how are you doing? Hi, good to see you. 
Very good to see you as well. And let's bring in the brilliant uh, Salam Arameh, who is the executive director of Rabbit by Pippid. Is that right? Have I said it right, Salam? I mean, I've got that. Yes, yes. yes. Are you You're in Ramallah right now? Is that right? I am. I am, yes. So Salam is joining us live from Ramallah in Palestine. Well, it's great to see you both. How are you both doing? Good, good. Thank you for having us. Let's just start. Let's bring up, I'm going to bring up, even with my dodgy Wi-Fi connection here in Barcelona, which I can see, I am going to bring up, let's just show the Instagram post which sparks this. The most innocuous Instagram post in history. If anyone is vaguely political and follows any political accounts, you wouldn't blink looking at this. Solidarity is a verb. That comes from the feminist scholar Sarah Ahmed. Do you look up her work? Uh, she quotes, Solidarity does not seem that struggles are the same struggles. Read the full quote. It's brilliant. And it shows some Palestinian activists. That was it. That was the whole thing. That was the post. Now, this triggered uh, the uh, the Israeli ambassador, uh, uh, former Israeli ambassador to the UN, uh, to smear her as an anti-Semite, which then led to coverage across across various uh, outlets. Emma Watson's pro-Palestinian Instagram post sparks anti-Semitism spat. Now, I suppose that in itself, I'll just bring you in, Em, because that in itself, what will now, I wonder just this as in terms of, you know, how this could have a chilling effect, because now, you know, anti-Semitism is an extremely serious uh, alle allegation, anti-Semitism is responsible for some of the worst crimes in human history. Well, the Shoah being the, you know, within living memory, the extermination of two-thirds of European Jews, the attempted extermination of all European Jews, but 2,000 years of blood libel, expulsions, pogroms, murder. Uh, I mean, our culture is drenched in anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism is extremely serious. So now, Emma, you know, people will see, debated, Emma Watson and anti-Semitism, um, uh, you know, scandal what impact do you think that has Ed? let's start with you well i think what was so interesting uh, about that this particular moment is the the crudeness of the former ambassador's response to sort of just completely denigrate this as um, anti-semitism when it clearly isn't is actually a really important moment for exposing uh this strategy that often is uh uh, put on by far-right Israel advocates to sort of denigrate any kind of solidarity with Palestinians as anti-Semitic. Um, and I think what was really important in this moment, um, firstly, that we had a chorus of voices saying, no, this isn't anti-Semitic, particularly and most and importantly, from my perspective, Jewish voices saying that this wasn't anti-Semitic. And I think that shows a real shift in the mentality around the sort of mainstreaming of um, Palestinian solidarity. So I think that that is really important. And the fact that people like Emma Watson, um, like Sally Rooney, are like actually speaking out on the issue of Palestine solidarity is, is great. And it, it's a really a powerful moment. But I think what it also represents and what we can also see is um, a reaction to uh, the sort of mainstreaming of Palestinian solidarity and the sort of popular, the popular, uh, how it's become more popular is that we have this very strong reaction, particularly from um, I think the Israeli government, for example, you know, I don't think it's a coincidence that after what happened in May and we saw people taking to the streets in support of Palestinians' human rights, um, that the Israeli government has then taken extremely harsh steps to criminalize Palestinian solidarity. For example, the designating of six Palestinian civil society organizations as terrorist organizations with like little to no evidence whatsoever. And as a result, that's going to undermine uh, Palestinian civil society more generally. And I'm sure Salem will speak to that. 
But we also see in Britain, as part of this authoritarian crackdown of the British government against our rights to protest, uh, that they'll be introducing a bill uh, in the House of Commons that will criminalize uh, basically the right to boycott. And that's obviously an attack on the boycott, divestment and sanction movement. And the, re the reason how they're justifying that is by saying we're protecting Jews and we're, we're trying to fight anti-Semitism. So what we see with that is that Jews are being used as a shield for the government to have its own sort of anti-Palestinian policies and its own sort of authoritar authoritarianism. And that's really dangerous for Jews in Britain and for the Jewish community. And I think that's how what we see in this moment again is that like the issue of uh, Palestinian liberation and this issue of anti-Semitism or Jewish safety are inherently intertwined. And that's why it's really important to sort of see this issue as a joint struggle and joint liberation. Salem, when you saw what the Israeli ambassador wrote, how did you feel as a Palestinian? Just unmuting. Um, I was outraged, but I also it was expected. It's something we've seen happen for a very long time. And I, I really appreciate kind of the framing of tonight's conversation around anti-Palestinian racism, because as you saw, the, the backlash Emma Watson's post uh, got, plus the media coverage, shows you how far the narrative and discourse has been skewed to, to one side of the conversation. Anti-Palestinian racism is never featured as, as part of this issue. And I think it's part of the crux of the matter. I mean, the, the response of, of, of calling that anti-Semitic is uh, founded on the existence of the Palestinian people, that we don't exist. And that's part of the ideology. You know, Palestinians are, don't exist as a people. Palestine never existed ever. And, and so how dare we have freedom and rights how dare we ask for them, demand them, and how dare the people stand with us? So therefore, any form of support, solidarity, or action of resistance, co-resistance by people who share the same values is usually uh, targeted with smear campaigns and attacks. And it's often one of two things. Either, either it's the weaponization of, of the fight against anti-Semitism, which is a real problem all around the world, and we should all be tackling as forms of all hate, um, and also the, the, the use of, of labels as, as, as terrorism or terrorists are really ugly stereotypes, but it's founded on this anti-Palestinian racism that has dehumanized us. And the narrative reflects that and the way we can have that conversation or the way it is had has reflected. Now it's changed and it is changing. But I think to properly tackle that, I think we need to address the underlying anti-Palestinian racism that exists. Um, I mean, let me just bring up, in fact, the, the the post just so people can see it. And this is a senior Likud politician, it should be said, who, speaking to the wider point about anti-Palestinian racism, which we will focus on, um, denies, opposes the right of the Palestinians to have their own nation to determine their own future. Ten points from Gryffindor for being an anti-Semite. Um, now, I mean, we'll talk about this in... More broadly, I mean, we'll, we will keep focusing on anti-Palestinian racism, but let's look at other recent examples. Desmond Tutu, as near as a secular saint as you're likely to get, recently denounced uh, by Alan Dershowitz, the man who was a rampant anti-Semite and bigot. That's how he was denounced. Uh, Sally Rooney, also an iconic Irish author. Uh, she... Uh, in line with boycott, divestment and sanctions, turned down a specific contract with a specific Israeli publisher, which was widely misportrayed as her refusing 
to allow her book to be translated into Hebrew, which is not true. She was very made it clear she'd be very happy to have that done. And her previous books have also been translated. I mean, so what we can see, I mean, we'll talk about the kind of broader in terms of other civil society, but any figure who does speak out, and we've seen other examples like Paris Hilton deleted tweets in solidarity. I mean, Paris Hilton was not the uh, Palestinian um, ally I was expecting, but hey, join in, get involved. But um, I mean, what does that, what, you know, I mean, no relation to me either, just to clarify. Yeah, I was going to say, just in case anyone yeah. thinks that, I mean, well, I mean, I don't know. I mean, presumed, I presumed not, but I don't want to be presumptuous. Yeah, I mean, so we're seeing quite a systematic targeting of any, any, any individual who speaks out. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's very clearly a strategy of like the right or far right Israel advocates to try and sort of say that any any kind of solidarity with Palestinians is anti-Semitic, and I think that that also speaks to the fact that you know they you know a lot of what Israel is doing, you know they're losing the argument internationally, right? Like apartheid is unjustifiable, occupation is unjustifiable. So what do you do if you can't win the argument? You try and silence the argument entirely, and you know. Uh, rightly, people don't want to be see themselves or don't want to be anti-Semitic. Like I think generally people think anti-Semitism is bad. So people don't want to risk being labeled an anti-Semite and it is weaponized in this way so that people don't want to speak out uh, in support of Palestinians in case they are labeled as such. And I think that that's why it's really important or what a role I think Jews are coming out in support of Palestinian solidarity and really seeing this as part of our struggle too as like, um, people who care about human rights and equality and dignity for all to come out and challenge that and say this is a weaponization of anti-Semitism. We we don't we will not uh, sit back and let people say that the mere existence of Palestinians is in some way inherently a threat to Jews or an attack on Jewish safety. You know I, I think that is such an egregious uh, and racist thing to say, frankly. Um, and I think that that's what's so interesting in this moment though is that we still within this sort of more mainstreaming cultural situation, like we do actually have people feeling more able to say that. And I think that that to some extent gives me hope for things going forward but we do also have to keep an eye on the way in which like the states that like and state military violence and and you know the israeli government or the british government might try and crack down on that from a more policy or legislative framework but i, I do think it's important that whilst those like those smears have um, been put into the public sphere they haven't carried a lot of weight and i think that that is um different to maybe 10 15 years ago I mean, Salam, how effective do you think, or in terms of your own work appealing for solidarity with the Palestinian people, I mean, what kind of, how do you, what kind of impact have you seen yourself, this whole strategy in terms of preventing people within the West from using their platforms and their voices to show solidarity with the Palestinian people? It's, it's very effective. It's very effective. I think because it, it's, it's a campaign that is being carried out by the Israeli government and its allies. And it's extended also to the legal and political and policy sphere. So, for, for example, I don't know if you've been following, but uh, six Palestinian civil society, or civil society organizations were falsely labeled as terrorist organizations by the Israeli Ministry of Defense. So it, they could stop any form of international funding to these civil society organizations. I mean, this is an agricultural agricultural union the, uh, uh, organization. This is an organization that docu documents the human rights of children. Uh, one of Palestine's biggest human rights organizations that's been documenting uh, Israeli violations for decades. Um, and, and this is part of it here, but also it extends abroad where in places like Germany, you can't 
uh, rent a venue to host a Palestinian film now because there's fear that anything that with the with the word Palestine or Palestinian will be associated with anti-Semitism. So and and then a step further, I mean, they're criminalizing any form of Palestinian activism that uh, is founded on the uh, you know on 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 BDS and other forms of activism. So it's it's becoming uh, an extremely uh, shrinking space where the room to maneuver, the, the room to speak out, usually has very severe consequences, whether it's legal, financial, political, uh, and, and people need to really, uh, you know, think twice about ever standing up and, and, and speaking out. So whether it's in, whether it's in Palestine or, or abroad, this is having really, really severe consequences. Um, I wonder if this is overreach, because I've actually seen voices I wouldn't have expected say, whoa, 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 this is obviously ludicrous. You can't just use anti-Semitism to shut down any form of solidarity with the Palestinian people from people we wouldn't associate with the left or indeed people associated with the cause of Palestinian solidarity. Um, I mean, do you think it is overreach? And do you think it's also a sign of weakness? Because actually, if you look at the polling across Western countries, including Britain, um, there has been actually a very marked turnaround in public opinion, public attitudes towards, when you look at towards specific countries, it's quite a crude way of looking at things, but the reputation of Israel has plummeted in Britain and in other European countries. So is it partly overreach um, and that overreach is coming from a, a defensive position of weakness. Is that an optimistic way of looking at it? And that's why more stars are speaking out, because it's becoming more widely accepted, particularly among the younger people. Oh, that's Should it, I... M. Sorry, go for oh, it, M. Sorry, M and, M and then to Salem, sorry. Oh, okay, sure. So, yeah, I think, I think it is really interesting. I think it does show potentially a shift, but I also think that, you know, with the, with the growth of social media, with the growth of, um, I think, Palestinian voices, particularly Palestinian activists, journalists, um, you know, and also just the, the reality of the facts on the ground, like I'm, I'm in Palestine Israel right now, and just the day-to-day brutality and reality of what's happening here, um, you know, it's, it's, it is, it's, it's indefensible. And I think that that is becoming clearer and clearer. Um, so I think that there is... There's an, it's an interesting moment that we're living through where there are these very extreme tactics, which perhaps maybe did work more effectively, um, you know, 10, 15 years ago, which like just don't seem to add up. And I also think that um, there is also a growing movement of Jewish and Palestinian solidarity, um, because obviously, you know, this idea of like trying to claim that anti, like pa- uh, supporting Palestinians is anti-Semitic is also a classic tactic of the right, you know, to divide and conquer, divide us from each other and say that there's not enough room for everyone at the table. So one of you has to go. And I think what we've seen, over, particularly in the last decade, is a real concerted effort to build Jewish Palestinian solidarity um, on the ground in terms of movements of people going to uh, Jews going to the uh, West Bank and the occupied territories and being in solidarity with Palestinian communities there. Um, but also uh, internationally, where we've seen the rise, particularly in the US, of like shifting conversations around Israel-Palestine through movements like If Not Now or Jewish Voices for Peace. In the UK, I think, um, you know, a broader sort of Jewish anti-occupation voice is coming into the fold. And so I think that it's much harder to just say that this is anti-Semitism because there are lots of Jewish people, I think, in particular saying, no, this isn't anti-Semitism. And every time you say that it's anti-Semitism, you are undermining the real and important fight um, against like the rise of white supremacy, the rise of white nationalism, the far right anti-Semitism, which is really dangerous. Um, And so I think that that's sort of where this shift is. Um, 
so yeah, I'm, I'm hopeful in that respect. I think, I think things are changing and it's changing through that Jewish-Palestinian solidarity. What do you, what do you think, Salem? Do you think this is a sign of, of actually insecurity because public attitudes in the West are actually changing, including in the United States? And there it's not just Americans. If you look at pollings of, polling of American Jews, very widespread hostility to the policies of the Israeli government. Yeah, I think there's there was a watershed moment in the global conversation around Palestine this summer when you know there was there's a lot of coverage in social media um kind of engagement on the what was happening in Jerusalem in Sheikh Jarrah, the ethnic cleansing of the Palestinian families there, the war on Gaza and all the events that followed. And I think there was an inspiration from the previous summer of the Black Lives Matter movement in the way the world also rallied around that. And so talking about Palestine, supporting Palestine entered the mainstream in a way that I don't think I've ever seen in my lifetime. So it was quite moving. I think where the gap is, uh, Owen, is at the moment that that uh, public opinion is not reaching elected officials, those that are in power that are affecting policy. To give you one example, you know, even though the majority of Democrats, uh, the base in America supports um, you know, sanctions on Israel. I think right after Israel was bombing Gaza, the U.S. Uh, Congress voted to renew military funding to Gaza to replenish the Iron Dome, Dome system. To give you one example of that, similarly in the U.K., where, as you said, Israel's popularity probably plummeted to, to you know, to, uh, to a low. You know, the, the, the UK government is still one of the biggest supporters of, of Israel. And we see that all over Europe and the US and, and different parts of the world. And similarly, in, 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 in Palestine, the apartheid regime that we live in under is, is becoming increasingly severe. And whether it's through its, its policies of oppression, of violence, ethnic cleansing, etc., it seems that they are getting away with more. And this ideology yeah. of building greater Israel, you know, and erasing anything that's Palestinian is, is moving forward every day without any accountability. And I think that links back to this conversation we're having today around anti-Semitism and the weaponization of, of, of it and, and anti-Palestinian racism. It was never fully held accountable. And so Israel and its allies have gone away with it for so long as things have gotten increasingly worse. And if we don't introduce accountability as part of this conversation, as part of the smear and, and, and attack tactics, or whether it's elected officials and policymakers who are having a direct impact on our level of freedom and rights in Palestine, this is not going to change. And I think that's where we need the most amount of action. Yeah. I mean, I mean, then on that, I mean, we're talking about anti-Palestinian racism there. Actually, just using that phrase, it's not a phrase you, you hear. It's not a phrase people are accustomed to hearing at all in this discussion or any discussion whatsoever. The idea that there is obviously an illegal occupation, that is discussed, though we can see how there was attempts to shut that discussion down. But the fact that, in this case, Emma Watson doing a very mild display of solidarity of the Palestinian people is denounced as anti-Semitism, that should be seen as anti-Palestinian racism because by definition it's saying that even showing any basic show of compassion or solidarity towards this oppressed people is itself vicious hatred, intolerant and despicable hatred is an act of racism. But we 
you know, the fact that we don't hear Palestinian voices in this discussion, the fact that, you know, when, when you get reporting, you, it's portrayed as a conflict, as though there's two equal sides, uh, rather than an occupation, one by a military superpower, the other by a, 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 an a long-occupied people lacking basic rights. Uh, the fact that, you know, the, number, the amount, the number of Palestinian dead in, in, in each assault is, is, isn't taken seriously at all in much of the coverage. How do we get people to take anti-Palestinian racism seriously, including in progressive circles? Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. M, sorry. I should say that. I should not. I'm never clear, I? I wish I lost my connection because my Wi-Fi has gone so dodgy. And I'm like, nope, they're gone. M, sorry, go for it. Well, I'm sure Salim could also speak to this, um, but I, I think um, it's a really important question. And I think one of the things that we I often think about in terms of thinking about anti-Palestinian racism um, is also how it's not just sort of like active, sort of like Palestinians are evil, whatever. It's also like, yeah, they're erasure from these conversations. And I think also like, you know, um, shamefully, I think even in like a lot of Jewish community circles where Israel is obviously a big topic of discussion, very rarely do you hear Palestinian voices in those circles either. And so I think that there is this, this sort of entire sort of denial um, of Palestinian experience because it is often framed as this threat to Jews or threat to Jewish identity or threat to even Israel, like what, whatever it is. Um, and I think that the way that we, I think as a Jewish person wanting to show solidarity with the uh, with Palestinian uh, movement, the Palestinian movement for freedom, uh, I, I think it's important to center that recenter those voices and give up space and recognize and like how um, how those voices are often invisible. Um, and I also think it's about, yeah, as you say, like calling out the fact that, you know, often every time people talk or what I've noticed, particularly, I think, in British media is every time there's a conversation, even about the occupation, right? Like there was an article in The Guardian recently, but like, yeah, it was a conversation about um, uh, uh, it was a, um, an article about sort of uh, the occupation of the occupied territories and, and what like solidarity work going on there. But there was still even this like caveat of and Palestinians commit violence, too. And it's like this idea that we always have to associate or this expectation that you associate Palestinians inherently with violence is in itself a racist trope. Um, and I think like, to be honest, I also think this is just broadly part of um, a, a, like a, a general sense of like anti-Arab racism, anti-Islamophobia, anti-Palestinian racism, like it's all part of that. And I think that as a white person and a white Jew, I also want to make sure that we are breaking down and challenging those kinds of narratives that exist within our society, in my community, but also more broadly as well. Um, and I think that that's, and also showing that like there should be accountability as Salem says, when Israel continues to act in this egregious way and that Palestinian lives matter, that that is not okay. Um, what's happened, like obviously what's happening in the occupied territories, what's happening in Sheikh Jarrah, like that is unacceptable. And like very clearly a, a, an example of ethnic cleansing. And we need to be able to use the language, not only that Palestinians have ascribed to their experience, but also calling, calling it out for what it is. And I think sometimes there's a fear to call it out for what it is because of this confusion around, well, is it anti-Semitic to say that uh, what's happening in Sheikh Jarrah is ethnic cleansing? And just, it just isn't. That is not what anti-Semitism is. Um, and I think that that, as a Jewish person, I feel I can play a role in, in challenging that and challenging that conflation. 
Salem, I mean, in terms of, you know, there'll be people watching or listening who are often progressively minded who won't have thought about this in terms of anti-Palestinian racism. And that includes, for example, erasure, erasing Palestinians as a people from this conversation, not giving, you know, any acknowledgement often of, of the existence of Palestinians is a form of racism. So what would you, you know, how, how would you appeal to those progressives to take this seriously as a concept? I think it echoes some of what Emma already said. I think centering Palestinian voices for a very long time, we weren't the authors and the narrators of our own story. People spoke for us. I think there was a study done by a Palestinian academic that uh, looked at the op-eds written in major Amer American newspapers over the last 30, 40 years, and about less than 1% were written by Palestinians about Palestinians. And I think that's a very big part of it, is allowing us to talk about our stories uh, and lead those conversations uh, and listen to Palestinians. The other thing is the media has been such a, the, the mainstream media has been such a, a, a vehicle for the dehumanization of Palestinians and echoes a lot of the narrative that Israel has put out into the world uh, that plays to very racist stereotypes, uh, you know, terrorists, violent, backward, uh, you know, uh, and, and these things perpetuate that 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 uh, that idea, and I think accountability in general. You know, whether it's uh, you know, look, a lot of the people who might be listening the, to this have the privilege of living in a democracy where there is a, a, a form of accountability that can be uh, levied against different institutions, regardless of what they are, and I think. That needs to happen. And, you know, the, the silencing of our voices, whether it's in Palestine or the solidarity that supports us abroad, is also part of the fabric of your societies, your democracies, your values, your civil rights and your ability to protest other things. And it might start with us today, but it eventually will impact the way you live your lives as well. So solidarity is, is about also intersectional support for one another, because what harms me today will harm you tomorrow. And I think this is a very important conversation to have, whether it's about surveillance, whether it's about walls, the weapons Israel uh, sells to authoritarian regimes all over the world are the weapons that are tested on us. And so what happens here doesn't stay here. And that's a very important reminder to the world. So it's it starts with Palestine, but it doesn't end here. And, that, and that's that would be my message to everyone listening. In terms of the effective strategies against the attempts to stigmatize even the most basic displays of solidarity with the Palestinian people, what 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 do we think those strategies can look like? Let's start with you this time, Salem. What do you think those strategies to to push back against the attempt to just shut down even the most basic rudimentary act of solidarity? Say that again, Owen. You're, you so what, kind of, what kind of strategies do you think are needed to push back against the attempt? to just suffocate out of existence any attempt to show solidarity with the Palestinian people in the West? Continue to speak up. I think continue to speak up, whether it's uh, amongst your friends, your community, um, on social media. And I think it's, it's important to transition this type of solidarity into political action and work within movements that are fighting for the same thing. Uh, at the end of the day, we need to also impact government uh, policy and legislation. 
And I think we, that is the next step. And holding Israel accountable, holding the, the weaponization of anti-Semitism, the smearing, that needs, that needs to, to become a priority for us. Um, so that, for me, is the most important part. And there's many ways that can be done. And, and whether it's in the UK, supporting different movements, different groups, different organizations like, like EMS, for example, or others who are doing this amazing work. But, but it needs to go from you know, community work, movement work, to, to political work on, on the electoral level as well, so it can eventually impact legislation and policy. And this is something I often say when I'm speaking with you know, parliamentarians from all around the world. As a Palestinian, I wish I didn't have to be sitting in front of you demanding that your country didn't enact policies and legislation that impacts my level of freedom. But sadly, that is the case. And so for those living in those countries, whether it's the UK, the US or, or otherwise, you have the ability to show and, 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 and put that accountability or demand that accountability from those people. So we need you uh, to push back and we need you to stand up. And what do you think about the strategies needed? Not least, for example, given the, the push against boycott, divestment and sanctions as a strategy, the government, well, Tory MP is looking to criminalise that. Uh, the same people, of course, who talk about the left being a threat to free speech. Uh, what, what do you think, Em? What are the kind of effective strategies to push back? Well, I definitely agree with what Salem said about building, um, like, t- like taking these next steps into sort of political accountability for what Israel is doing. Um, I think that's absolutely crucial. But I also think in terms of this broader conversation around anti-Palestinian racism and anti-Semitism, I think we need a much better understanding of anti-Semitism. Um, I think one that looks at like the conditions in which anti-Semitism thrives usually um, in societies of inequality um, and thinking about like if we have a, a better societal global understanding of how anti-Semitism operates, it's much harder for it to be weaponized into this uh, way to undermine and denigrate uh, Palestinian human rights. And I think that that is something that is severely lacking, I think, in the British political context at the moment. I think it's, you know, and and it allows it to very easily to be weaponized in this way. Um, and I think that, you know, as well as like really trying to build a sense of like leftist struggle um, that sees like anti-Semitism, anti-Palestinian, uh, sorry, Palestinian liberation, anti-Palestinian racism, like as part of this anti-racism struggle and like stop this stop this these attempts by the right to continue to divide us and and have us at each other's throats rather than like actually thinking about how we work together and see that all our goals are the same um and so i think that that to me alongside sort of making sure that israel is held accountable is also making sure that i think that jews also feel secure um in in britain and society and feel comfortable being as part of the society and don't feel i guess like to some extent like don't feel like that like the right is where their safety is because I think like at the moment, there is a real misunderstanding of that. And obviously that's a whole other uh, potential uh, show uh, to talk about anti-Semitism. But I do think that in terms of that, uh, alongside what Salem said, I think really getting a better understanding of how anti-Semitism operates and also the threat of the right um, is really crucial. I mean, just a bit more on that end, because I mean, the statistics show that hate crimes against Jews are rising. They're surging in Britain and elsewhere. We as discussed, anti-Semitism is, is ingrained in European culture and um, didn't disappear with the with the Holocaust. Uh, the last, uh, a lot of people don't realise the last anti-Jewish riots in Britain were actually 1947 after World War II had ended. I mean, how does this undermine the fight against the actual real menace of anti-Semitism, which does exist and is a growing problem? 
I mean, I, I'm very reticent to let uh, another conversation that should be. Yeah, about. of course. To, to, like to come back to uh, anti-Semitism, but I think I, I think I'll just say quickly. Um, I think it completely cheapens uh, the fight against anti-Semitism, partly because I think it's deeply racist to imply that uh, Palestinian existence is somehow anti-Semitic or inherently anti-Jewish. But I also think it makes people fundamentally not think that anti-Semitism is real. Like I think it makes people think that it's just a ploy um, to support the Israeli state and that anti-Semitism isn't a real thing, and that makes Jews feel very unsafe. And I also think, you know, it it really speaks to this broader issue of how, like, you know, I think that, like, the political class, like, whether, like, both in the Tories and in the Labour Party as well, like, are you, you instrumentalizing, like, real Jewish anxiety to push their own political agendas? And often that political agenda is part of, like, this anti-Palestinian racism, whether it's saying nothing about, um, you know, decades of occupation and apartheid or, like, trying to push through this authoritarian legislation. So I think that um, unless we have a better understanding and like and like as long as sort of there is this constant uh, desire to like conflate criticism of Israel with anti-Semitism, it just makes Jews a lot less safe. And I think that that's very dangerous. Um, and I think a lot of the work that we can do, which is really exciting, is like and also like particularly because, you know, in May, when some people were saying quite anti-Semitic things, like the first people to speak out about that were people from the Palestinian liberation movement to, say, to call that out. Like, I think this idea that Jews and Palestinians cannot, like, our, um, our um, needs are mutually exclusive is wrong. And actually, that this is where the work is. Um, so I think that that's, you know, I don't want to go on about this for too long, but I do think that there is a real opportunity here for um, re-educating and rethinking about how we, how we think about um, anti-Semitism in society more broadly and how we think about it on the left in particular. I mean, Salam, what, what are your thoughts about building... Uh, stronger coalitions of of both Jewish and Palestinian peace activists together, united against, of course, the occupation and apartheid in Israel. How do you see those coalitions at the moment, and what more can be done to build them? I think it's a, it's absolutely critical. I, I think whether it's it's abroad or it's it's here, I think it's essential. You know, we need to. It's not only about co coexistence; it's about co resistance, and we. You know, to dismantle apartheid and rebuild a different system and social contract where whether you're Palestinian, Jewish or otherwise, you know, you have the same freedom, rights and equalities that takes us doing it together. And it's essential to be able to find uh, and connect uh, with like minded Palestinians and Jews in here and all over the world to be able to do that. And pressure is going to come needs to come from from internally. Uh, to this system, uh, to dismantle it, to go through a system of decolonization, but also externally. I mean, because of the asymmetry of power between us and the apartheid regime and the occupation regime, we need solidarity from abroad. It's it's such a critical part of of, of our struggle. And so the, the, the solidarity between Jewish groups and Palestinian groups, but all, all types of groups, progressive groups that are fighting for, for the same values is essential. Uh, is absolutely essential. So, you know, this is something that is increasing and has been increasing, and it's it's amazing. But it, we're in in the beginning of that, and at the moment, those solidarity movements are much stronger abroad than they are here, uh, for, for many reasons. Among them, you know, the, the apartheid regime and its ability uh, or its denial of our ability to move and connect. You know, even amongst Palestinians uh, within ourselves. So, but it's critical, it's essential. And I think if we're ever gonna see a different social contract where all of us have the same freedom, freedoms and, and rights, it's gonna be when we, when we do it together.
What do you think, Em, on that? Yeah, I think that uh, the future is freedom, equality, and dignity for everyone uh, in this land, and that uh, it's absolutely like co-resistance is key. And uh, for a number of years, I've been involved with an organization called the Center for Jewish Nonviolence, which brings international Jews um, to the to the West Bank and East Jerusalem to undertake solidarity, co-resistance with Palestinian communities. And for me, that's been the most um, transformational and important work. Uh, for really thinking about uh, building a future in uh, in Israel-Palestine that like models these values of justice and equality and freedom, and also the importance of like really showing like having a Jewish presence in Palestine solidarity movements. Um, I think it, like in allyship, um, in co-resistance, um, you know, for for Jews to sort of put their bodies on the line and say that we will not stand uh, stand for the state and military violence being done in our name is like really fundamental. I think to this struggle. Uh, and I think that that, you know, combined with this broader sort of political agitation and political accountability um, is absolutely crucial. Like, uh, yeah, I think that's the only way forward. Um, and it's been a privilege to be part of that work. Just finally, Salem, I mean, you said that this apartheid regime, it's got it's got more and more severe. I mean, Human Rights Watch last year, about a year ago now, and let's be honest, Human Rights Watch are not known as a radical human rights uh, organization is seen as kind of relatively milk toast for quite i mean they do excellent work uh, don't get me wrong and, and a whole range of spheres but they, they're not not known as some sort of radical ngo but they described of course um, the situation as apartheid what is the situation on the ground in ways that i think maybe people in the west often don't understand and need to grasp about how intolerable how suffocating the occupation and apartheid has become, which Western governments, of course, are directly complicit in because of their active support for the Israeli state in its occupation. Yeah, I, I, I missed some of that question, but I'm, I'm assume how suffocating has the Israeli apartheid regime yeah. been and how has it increasingly become so? Yeah, so just just very briefly to, to distill it to its essential feature, you have one system uh, and essentially a one-state reality between the river and, and the sea where Israel and the regime controls every human being. And it allocates freedom, freedom and rights based on your ethno-national ident identity. If you're a Jewish, you have the full spectrum of rights. If you're Palestinian, you're put into different categories. And those categories determine a hierarchy of freedom and rights. So it get, gets worse and worse and worse depending where you live and what ID you have. And what, what has been happening, you know, over time is Palestinians have been put into these shrinking, uh, you know, population centers, Bantu stands with, with very increasingly limited rights. I mean, we, we barely have access to water. And when you want to talk about the climate justice and, and, and climate emergency, Israel contour, controls our entire water supply, but allocates 80% of that water to Israeli illegal Israeli settlements that are considered a war crime next to Palestinian cities. And so we get 20% of our own water in an area and a part of the world that is, is increasingly drying uh, and becoming increasingly arid. So this is one example how apartheid works. Uh, the, the levels of violence have been increasing, the killing of Palestinians, uh, detain, detaining and killing of children, um, the, the ability of, of fascist Israeli settlers who live in these settlements to roam the hills of the West Bank in mobs to look for Palestinian farmers to, to attack, beat up, and, and, and shoot at with 
being aided and abetted by the Israeli army is becoming an everyday occurrence here. We, we are no longer safe on our roads, on our land, you know, on any given day. And so it's becoming worse. And there's no way for us to hold it accountable because Israel and its military is the extreme authority here. Um, and that's why, again, I go back to this idea, solidarity is so important as, as, as it's getting extremely dark and without an, another uh, form of accountability mechanism coming from abroad to help this, this, this liberation movement, it's going to be very hard. Um, and and it's it's extremely important uh, now more than ever. Emin Salam, you've both been absolutely brilliant. Such a thorough dissection of the issue, its complexities, but also talking practically about what people can do uh, to show their support with the Palestinian people. And I think it is heartening that despite the fact we are seeing an attempt to silence voices, um, it does feel like the dam has burst somewhat. And particularly amongst younger people, um, let's be generous, people under 40, so I can claw my way in to that bracket. People under 40, the millennials and the Zoomers who will save us all uh, in Western countries, attitudes have, have, have shifted. I think it's very striking in the United States, actually, because actually it used to be the case amongst many people who regard themselves as progressives that to criticise the Israeli occupation was seen as kind of not something you did at all. And now you've seen a very dramatic shift. You've seen, particularly in the United States, a whole generation of younger Jewish activists who are very, very loud and very, very prominent uh, in their in their support for for solidarity with Palestine. It does feel like things are changing and shifting. We're seeing a very angry and and quite scared, but still nonetheless quite effective attempt to shut down that solidarity and support. But it, but it is, the question is, I suppose, how effective will that be if those attitudes continue to shift in such a dramatic way, thanks to the work of people like both yourselves in, in, in raising awareness? So huge solidarity, uh, not least for Salem, who is, of course, in Ramallah. Um, it's been such an honour to have you both. So thank you so much and take care. Thank you so much. Thank you, thank you Owen. Appreciate it. Um, now, I know my internet connection is actually quite dodgy, I can tell. It does this thing where it just lights up Wi-Fi, kind of a Wi-Fi problem, which is unfortunate that we didn't, we could only do that really by trying it out uh, here in Barcelona. Uh, so I'll just wrap up quickly because I probably look like a big old blob. I probably, it's probably an improvement, if anything. Maybe I should, maybe should make this a permanent fixture. Um, yeah, I am in Barcelona. I posted about this. Um, I do realise anything I post is going to probably, like pictures of my cats. I put pictures of my cats on Twitter and have bad faith responses to it. Abuse. <laughs> and these, I used to be, I used to be kind of like all these bad faith attacks. I'm like, well, this is tedious. Now I'm like, nothing I can do about it. <laughs> uh, yeah, I came to Barcelona to finish my book and, and I said I was there for enforced solitude and some people interpreted that as me saying that I was suffering a huge hardship uh, by coming to Barcelona. I've written about Barcelona in my book partly because they've got a progressive administration here. I wasn't claiming that. I know it's a big privilege to be able to be in Barcelona and to do my work. It's a very cliched thing. Lots of authors, I've got to finish a book. It's called, I'll, I'll briefly explain, lots of authors throughout history obviously just go somewhere to finish a book. That's all it is. Um, I realise the vast majority of people can't do that, can't do that work. Uh, the Telegraph apparently are doing a diary 
uh, feature about it. I've just been told this by James Schneider, who used to work for Jamie Corbyn. He's also writing a book abroad. So they're going to throw us both in. I mean, I suppose if it sucks up right-wing newspapers' resources, stops them going on about migrants, Muslims, trans people, write as many diary pieces as you want. So it's going gonna, it's gonna to suck up your time and money. Um, the book is called The Alternative and How We Build It. And what I've done is interview thousands of people, I think, at this point, looking at models across the world, things we can learn from, uh, but also just ideas that economists, academics, progressive, you know, campaigners, activists, a, a huge range of issues, how we transform the economy, health, climate justice, trying to link it together, look at examples of movements fighting and struggling. That's what we've been doing. Um, so that's the idea of the book. It's going to come out in the autumn. I'm here to finish it just because if you're in, if I'm in London, I'm surrounded by people and I was just more likely not to do my book, but people on Twitter have interpreted it in a different way. Well, only people who, to be honest, anything breathing would probably be seen as a terrible, outrageous affront on my part. Um, anyway, that was great. Uh, despite the Wi-Fi problems, which we will fix, I promise you, we'll be back on Sunday at 12 o'clock. Uh, I will continue to write this book. Uh, we've got, we'll do interviews while I'm here. I'll do my very best. And um, we will be expanding the channel in February onwards because I can actually commit proper time because I won't have my book tapping on my shoulder. That's what it's like a gremlin just tapping on my shoulder. Everything I do, it's like, why aren't you doing your, do your book, you bloody stop and idiot. Um, so, um, yeah, so we will be expanding then. Thanks to your support. That's why we're doing those documentaries. So do support us on patreon.com forward slash Owen Jones 84. Thanks to Tad and David Bowater. This was an impromptu show. So sorry it was so impromptu. But as I said, I think we'll be doing it every Thursday. I'm not sure it'll be seven. It might be six o'clock, but I will double check that. Uh, but we'll be here Sunday at 12 o'clock as per usual. Uh, but we've got loads of great ideas and people on Patreon, I'm going to do a post to get ideas because all the documentaries and so on we've done are because of you. We're going to be doing shorter videos as well as the longer videos to cut to, because that's what we need. We need these shorter videos. Obviously, a lot of those on Facebook and do you, that's very, you know, on Instagram and so on. We've already been doing clips, but we'll be doing more shorter videos for YouTube as well. All right, everybody. Well, um, I better go back to my book, uh, hear my own in my enforced solitude, which is a huge privilege, okay? Telegraph diary writers, <laughs> I'm not pretending to suffer. Uh, thanks for all the guests. Uh, lots of love. Sorry about the Wi-Fi connection. We will fix it. Um, take care, everyone. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening, everyone. I hope you found that informative, educational, uh, interesting, and I certainly did. Uh, do support us on Patreon to keep the show on the road, uh, forward slash Jones 84 Leave us some stars, that'd be nice. Spread the word. And I look forward to speaking to you soon.